What does motion sound like? With Kizikans free shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizikcom socks. Welcome to the Velvet Machete Leadership Podcast. Become a confident, compassionate leader while sharpening your brand from the inside out. It's time to gear up to learn from expert guests and your host, Amber Hurdle. Hi, welcome back to the Velvet Machete Leadership Podcast. So grateful that you're here. I know I say this all the time, but I know you've got lots of ways that you can be spending your time and lots of ways that you can be learning and investing in yourself. And I do not take for granted one second that you are choosing to spend this time with me and my guests today. So thank you so much for that. Um, If you do not already subscribe, please, wherever you're listening to this podcast, subscribe on your, your listening app, or if you're watching on YouTube, then certainly hit the subscribe button and the bell. And then that will like ding, ding, anytime that we post something and make it easy peasy for you to follow along. Now I'm going to keep this short and sweet. I'm not going to do any shout outs with listeners or anything. Um, simply because I went a little bit over with this person, but I think you're going to like it. Um, my guest today is super cool. Um, I was looking forward to interviewing him for quite some time now. Um, so without further ado, I'm just going to read you his bio so that you know what a bad mamma jamma this person is. So Chris Nealon going to be on the show today. He's the CEO of the cult collective, one of North America's premier engagement marketing firms. His overriding professional passion is helping brands accelerate growth by reimagining how they engage consumers and employees. You know, I love that. Don't forget the employees. He's committed to helping courageous brand leaders embrace proven marketing principles he's discovered while working with the most iconic cult-like brands on the planet. Chris held marketing roles at the world headquarters of John Deere and the Home Depot. He was also formerly head of retail marketing at RAPP, Omnicom's preeminent relationship marketing agency. He co-founded Cult in 2010 and has consulted with Harley Davidson, pretty cool brand, Canadian Tire, Marks, Zappos, Best Buy, HEB Grocery Storage, Carter's, Keurig, United Ways, and dozens of other brands. Throughout his career, he has lobbied for customer advocacy over acquisition and brand engagement over entertainment. He helps clients by getting customers to buy more by buying in. Y'all, you are going to love Chris. Um, He is crazy smart and just looks at things a little bit differently and uh, challenges you to be your best self. Who does that sound like? I don't know. I don't know. You don't have to be the best. You just have to be your best, right? So um, he's going to teach you how to do that. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, welcome, Chris, to the Velvet Machete Leadership Podcast. We're so happy to have you today. Oh, it's great to be here, Amber. I'm looking forward to this. I've been looking forward to this. We've, we've had you on the calendar for quite some time. Um, and so that's given me a little extra time to do some stalking of you, which I hope you take as a compliment and not as a weird <laughs> oh, Amber stalking me. This is great. <laughs> I'm, I'm flattered. I'll take any attention I can get. <laughs> well, we've, we discussed your credentials and, and all the different cool things that you've done with different really, really large companies. Um, but before we dive into your thoughts on the whole cult brand experience. Can you just 
give us your definition of branding. I think we all have our own ways that we frame that. And I would just be interested to share yours. Yeah. I don't know that, um, I don't know that my definition is that different than maybe the academic version in terms of the reputation and the perception, uh, the emotion that's evoked in the hearts and minds of the people who, who know you. Um, my, my, personal bent and my professional bent is less that we've gotten branding wrong. And it's more about if that is what branding is, what are you doing to actually more appropriately influence the thoughts, feelings, beliefs, attitudes that people have for you? Uh, because I don't see a lot of branding going on today. I see a lot of advertising and a lot mm -hmm. of promotion uh, and I think that branding has been bastardized into some sort of, uh, you know, emotional 60 second TV commercial, like some CMO can say, check the box. We did some branding because we did a non-promotional, you know, commercial. And I think storytelling is a way to build a brand, but that's not branding. Branding right. is much more of the product experience itself, which marketers unfortunately do very little with today. Most organizations, somebody else invents a product and then they go to the marketing team and say, can you help me sell this? Mm -hmm. Well, that's backwards. The marketing team should be creating that product. And then the customer experience and really kind of going back to even the initial four P's of marketing. I just am heartbroken that marketers don't do that anymore. We just promote, promote, promote. And we used to have really deep conversations about how we're going to position this and what products do we even need and where are we going to sell it and what's the experience going to be like for those who use it. And uh, I, you know, I just have, uh, I've been in enough boardrooms to realize those types of meaningful conversations are the exception, not the rule, at least with the marketing team. There are other individuals who maybe are having those conversations, but marketing has been left out. And I'm trying to change that. Yeah. And so, you know, for those who don't, know the structure behind the scenes you you do have marketing and then you have public relations and then you have branding that somewhat intersects those two or maybe the senior leadership team is also involved in that and um and the continuity is that the right word i'm looking for of all of those layers working together and HR and PR should be best friends also because HR has such a grip on the branding experience, right? Because if your employees are living the brand day to day, then your customer is experiencing the brand because it's being, they were the keeper of it. Right. And so your culture and your brand and all these things come together, but what are we just moving too fast? Why aren't people having these conversations together and doing that deep dive? I think in the, as, as the world's gotten more complicated, IT and HR and advertising and PR and social and e-commerce and CRM have all gotten siloed. They kind of mm. went deep as thinking that their expertise was going to be understanding the KPIs and the technology that enable or empower that discipline. And they've lost the, what they're really looking for is the synergy. It's the interplay. It's the commingling right. of those. It's like, it's like, you know, building a, an NBA team or a major league baseball team. Like everybody's kind of finding these star players to run their discipline, but they're not a great team. They're not even really operating as a team. And in fact, in some of the most toxic cultures, they're, they're actually sabotaging each other. They're fighting for resources. They're fabricating their reports. Everybody's going into the CEO 
claiming attribution for some good thing that happened that's going to, you know, steal money from one group or steal resources or steal political capital from one group. So, uh, I mean, the world certainly has gotten more complicated. And I do think that we need subject matter experts that understand email or PR or talent recruitment or whatever. But there, there needs to be somebody, there needs to be enough people who pop their heads up and are spending as much time in other people's offices talking about, well, if we're doing this, I, I, you know, I, I remember at the gathering a year ago, um, IBM was sharing some statistics with Yeti about the number of employee, the number of job applicants that apply for a job who have a negative experience, 60 or 70% of them now no longer will shop that brand. Right. So the guy from Yeti's jaw dropped saying, are you telling me because Yeti's very popular, they get thousands of unsolicited resumes of people trying to say, I want to work for you. And if Yeti's HR is very functionally saying, no, thanks, no, thanks, no, thanks. They're actually damaging the brand. They're actually ruining people's desire to want to buy more Yeti products. So the marketing guy's like, I got to get in there and make sure that we're giving these people hugs and that we're letting them down easy, that we're breaking up in a good way Mm -hmm. uh, because those people are the ultimate form of advocates. They don't just want to buy Yeti products, they want to work for Yeti. They want to devote, you know, 50 hours a week uh, for Yeti. And I don't think many marketers think of HR that way. And you can say that same thing with IT or e-commerce or store experience. And so, um, you know, you're starting to see a lot of big organizations now are hiring chief experience officers or customer Mm -hmm. experience officers. And I just hate that because what that means is all the other leaders have failed me. Nobody else is has risen above their silo and stepped up to the up to the plate. And so we have to introduce yet another executive and high priced overhead to do the integration that technically the CMO or the CTO or the COO should have been doing already, All along. but they got distracted. Yeah, because you, you do need, I mean, everybody's playing their instrument, but if you don't have a conductor of the orchestra, the music can't play together. It's it's not an appealing thing for the audience. And so that's that's the struggle bus. Let's take it down too, because we're <clears throat> talking real big picture. I mean, you've done work with Harley Davidson and I mean, just all these big brands. Um, what about what about my listeners who are, you know, I've got 10 employees. I have a hundred employees. I have two employees or I'm a solopreneur. What does this feel like when I am playing all these roles in my business and I, I am responsible for the brand because there's nobody else to pass it off to <laughs> that. That's an advantage. That, that's a feature, not a bug. I mean, I, 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 I love think, it. Uh, a lot of people somehow dismiss, I can't be as awesome as I want to be because I don't have a huge ad budget or I don't have a big team or I can't afford a New York agency. And it's like, no, in most cases, I think those are liabilities. Like the, the, because the further you get away from your customer, the less impact you're going to have. I remember in the early days of my career, I worked at the Home Depot and Home Depot was like, I think building a store a day at the time. It was like Jeez. insane. They, they were the, the poster child, the big box retail. But one of the things that they were committed to was a hiring and promoting from within. So there was a lot of, you know, part-time workers who became full-time people who became cashiers, who became district managers, who became corporate employees. So they, they had a disproportionate number of people who had been on the front lines and who had had daily contact with customers. 
And then they would make you every year don the uh, uh, Donna orange apron and go work in a store. That's amazing. I don't care if you were the VP of whatever. And even their headquarters wasn't called headquarters. It was called the store support center. Mm-hmm. And it was the psychology that all of us are in service to that customer who was coming in to buy that tool or that lumber. And let's never get, you know, let's never forget or lose sight of that. And I think that companies need a lot more assertive, proactive reminders like Zappos, which we've had the privilege to work with every year when they hit their holiday uh, spike, they don't bring in seasonal workers. They get the executives to go work the phones. It's like, everybody's going to go into the call center. We we got a lot of volume and everybody's going to be reminded that this is where our revenue comes from. This is why we exist as a business. And you know, I've talked with many C-suites at giant, you know, Fortune 100 companies, particularly in CPG, who their only interaction with a customer might be an annual field trip to watch a, a focus group behind the glass. Like they're yeah. not spending time in people's homes. They're not spending time, uh, you know, uh, with the product and how they're being used. And that's just a tragedy. So if you're small, you know, you're going to be busy. But consider that a superpower that I'm able to make these decisions without the bureaucracy and without all the politics that goes into understanding, should that money go into a return policy? Should that money go into a product feature? Should that money go into a television commercial? Should that money go into a a, a gift with purchase or a referral program? Like there's lots of choices that you get to make when you're a small team. Yeah, I love that. So as a very rebellious human being, um, I do love your approach and your your cult uh, experience because it's doing things differently and you call BS on sloppy or good enough branding or lack thereof completely. So can you walk us through like, how did you form this platform, if you will? Um, what is your, well, we'll, we'll I'll ask you two questions. I'll let you just take it from there. But how did you form this platform? And then what, what does it mean? Like, what's the difference of a cult brand versus an average brand? Yeah. So the platform, my, my um, ideology, and I say my, and there's, there's a team of us that have been kind of formulating this for well over a decade now. Um, grew out of, I like to say, I sometimes say I grew a conscience or I, I, I tried <laughs> to live with some integrity. We were doing traditional advertising um, and knew that the clients were asking the wrong questions and that what we were going to do was not going to fix their problem. Uh, the, the book that we ended up writing called Fix used the metaphor of pain medication I feel like businesses are, are hurting and they call up their ad agency to make the pain go away. And what the ad agencies do is prescribe a bunch of Oxycontin. Right. And what they really should have done is you need to go get your ACL replaced. You need to have mm-hmm. surgery. You need to get the tumor out. But ad agencies don't have that credibility. Um, they're not sought after for that sort of invasive procedure most businesses don't want to go through the, the process of surgery and rehab and physical therapy. They just want the quick fix weight loss pill. You know, they want the thing and they just say, well, and you know, after years of taking clients money, pretending that this 
ad-centric or this sales-centric approach was going to make a difference, we finally said enough. Like, I, we just can't do it anymore. It's, it's, why don't you guys just do this instead? And um, labeled as, a, as an ad agency, we didn't have that credibility. They were like, what do you, like, maybe that's something that McKinsey would tell us to do or Bain right. would tell, you need to be a business consultant, not an ad agency. Like, we were viewed as creative storytellers and pretty picture makers and not, you know, diagnostic, uh, you know, going able to go strategic. in and really strategically advise on what that was. So we said, fine, we're not going to be an ad agency anymore then. And we, we hung up the, we said, we're going to fire the, 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 the production teams and the media buyers and the people that perfect the craft of storytelling. And we're going to become uh, the advisors that we uh, think that the clients need. And then we just needed some IP. I was like, uh, we can't just have our opinion. We had to have data and proof points and research and frameworks and all the things that consultants have. And so that's what started our journey. It, really, it was this one-two punch of uh, working with a retailer that was competing against Lululemon and us realizing that we're not making a dent against that brand. There's something weird and irrational going on at Lululemon that we're not, <laughs> is. That, that, that our traditional marketing and advertising playbook is not fighting. And then when Harley hired us, we had the, you know, I think that we added value to Harley, but they also added tremendous value to us to be able to look under that hood and say, oh, they don't even believe the same things that, you know, Kawasaki might believe or, or Honda might believe or Indian might believe, right? Like they're just a different animal or different species altogether. So it was really on the backs of those one, two things that we said, I wonder if there's actually, uh, we now call it an ideology, a framework out there that we just didn't know about. And so that's where in doing both the, the research for the book and then we created an event called The Gathering where uh, like in the early days, it was Red Bull, it was Las Vegas, it was the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, uh, the Dallas Cowboys. Like what's going on inside these organizations that's allowing them to achieve such irrational uh, affinity for their brand? Which actually answers your second question. Cult brands have five attributes that mediocre brands don't have. And, and uh, those five attributes are... Uh, the first is this, uh, we call it brand attachment, but brand attachment is a KPI that refers to the emotional investment that somebody has towards your brand. So I, I don't just like that brand, I love that brand, or I would die if that brand went away. And so uh, it, there's actually a way to measure it. Uh, most brands um, get distracted with like net promoter score. They think it's mm -hmm. just based on either satisfaction metrics or referral metrics. And those are poor proxies for true brand attachment. Um, the second is um, a disproportionate amount of, of word of mouth or advocacy. So they can literally trace back their success to how, when you think of somebody at Costco, Costco just doesn't advertise. They, they, their growth is through word of mouth. Tesla, same idea. Lululemon, same idea. You don't see commercials for these brands. They're benefiting from word of mouth. The third is because they're getting so much word about, they spend less as a percentage of sales on advertising. So again, they're not anti-advertising. And sometimes in our bravado or in our hyperbole, people accuse us of hating ads. Listen, Coca-Cola is a cult brand. They do a lot of advertising. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, the Ford Mustang is a cult brand. It's advertised. So it's not that they don't advertise. It's as a percentage of revenue 
they are more profitable because they don't have to spend as much. Mm-hmm. Um, the fourth deals with um, the percentage of product that's sold at full price. Non-cult brands, which we call mediocre brands, um, have a disproportion of sales on discount. They, they, they're really good at bribing people to shop as opposed to people willing. You think of some of the best cult brands in the world, Apple, Starbucks, we mentioned Tesla, these, uh, Porsche. These are not cheap brands. These are mm-hmm. premium brands. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the benefit you get from being a cult brand. Not every cult brand is premium. Target's not premium. Chick-fil-A. Uh, Southwest Airlines, Chick-fil-A is not premium. But they can get away with higher margin because they're not, uh, Chick-fil-A is not bombarding your, your mailbox with buy one, get one free offers the way yeah. that you know, other uh, fast food brands might. Yeah. And, then the and fifth they've got one, the, the sorry, wraparound of the, I mean, it's just, it never, I'm never not astonished if I can use a double negative when I drive by a Chick-fil-A at lunch and it's like, there's police officers directing traffic. Oh. Like that's crazy train. That's, that's cult brand. Chick-fil-A is one of my favorite cult brands, very controversial given their mm-hmm. stance on, uh, on uh, some social issues, but I had a chance to visit them at their headquarters and evaluate them for the gathering. And um, there are things going on there, particularly if you understand just the revenue per store is so much, it's light years better than most stores. And they're not, and they're doing it six days a week instead of seven because they're closed on Sundays. It's amazing. Crazy. But then the fifth one, Amber, that I really love is, and you mentioned employer brand in the setup is um, cult brands uh, reap benefits from heightened levels of internal engagement and productivity. Um, lots of CMOs think that their job is to become beloved externally. And it mm-hmm. actually, one of the cult brand principles is built from the inside out. And there's a high correlation between places that are voted great places to work and places that reap benefits of cult-like advantage. And that, that's why I love the fact that you even mentioned HR. That marriage of, of marketing and HR is tighter than most brands realize. Um, and the idea that, in, that truly bought in employees, not only are more productive, less absenteeism, less fraud, less theft, all that kind of stuff, but they are evangelists. They're referring. They're, you, you, they spend, uh, cult brands spend less money on headhunters and oh, search consultants. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Zappos had 20,000 applicants for 200 job positions. Like they think about the embarrassment of riches. You don't have to pay top dollar. You get to cherry pick the best people, people that are working their work extra hard because they know there's 19,999 other people begging for their seat. And so there's a really, and it's wildly fulfilling. That's the other thing. As I, I tell CMOs, you're robbing yourself of a lot of personal pleasure because building a company that people want to work for fills you with the feel goods. The warms yeah. and fuzzies. It, 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 you're improving people's lives in ways that's not just, you know, hawking a good or a service. And that, I mean, just even as we think about social issues, one, the one thing I talk about with leaders is leadership is, is very much a calling and how you lead your people and how you create that work environment for them, then they take that home. And that has a rippling effect in their own communities and their families and their communities. So if you have that strong culture, which is the bedrock of a brand, in my opinion, 
And those people are showing up to work every single day, whether you're a small shop or a fortune 100 company, they're having that experience. Of course, they're going out and they're recruiting, they're giving discretionary effort. They want other family members to be a part of this, but then they go home and home. They have an experience there where they've kind of put it in their wagon and pulled it with them from work where they spend more time than they spend with their families. And so now kids are being influenced and spouses and partners and community and where they volunteer and where they hang out. Like it's just so much bigger than give me money. And here's a widget. Like there's just, it's a deeper thing. Like it's a human, it's a human thing that's going on. Um, when you have a strong brand, a true brand, an authentic brand, or to your, you know, ver- ver- verbal, um, description of a cult brand. Mm-hmm. I, I, so, Take us through um, that connection. We talked about it before the show um, in our just kind of pre-chat. Take us through, because we, we very much believe this in, in my world, in the work I do, that yes, you have a business brand, meaning the external brand, that that, that customer experience, if you will, what the external world believes about your, your company. Um, but that is delivered by your employer brand, meaning what does it feel like to work here? And- and that is led by personal brands and all the personal brands interacting together in that employer brand. So that's, that's what this audience is used to hearing about. Um, you articulate things in a really groovy way. So I want to know, like when you go in and you go, uh, I'm going to use the word attack. I know you're not like being aggressive, but like you have to do some, some demo, I'm sure with your, your customers. How do you buy them into that? And what is your process? I I know you can't like give the full, you know, just kind of high level. How do you get people bought into that concept? So each of the three is is slightly different. I think so where it almost always starts is the business brand. And um, they don't even, clients wouldn't even necessarily have correlated the dots. What they have is a business pain. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's an opportunity, but most of the time it's a pain. And we have to help them understand how brand can fix that. Because I think most people are better at building businesses than they are building brands. And so we help inject a healthy dose of brand building into their otherwise business building activities. And it's not either or. I mean, I, I, I'm going to be speaking next week and I, I use Airbnb as an example what was better for Airbnb using their sales and marketing and advertising might to contribute to their $4 billion of annual revenue or using their sales, marketing and advertising might to contribute to their $101 billion market cap when they went public in December of 2020. Right. It's like, mm-hmm. it's an order of magnitude 25 X to right. build a brand <laughs> more than just build a business. And I think that branding gets a bad uh, reputation largely because of the ad community that talks about branding as a form of storytelling and people start to think that, well, I have to decide, is this dollar going to build my business or is this dollar going to build my brand? And in the reality, the answer, the answer is both, you know, not, not either or. But so I think that's, that's the one that's the, that's the ground that's most covered is how do I build a brand um, externally? We have to convince marketers that um, their responsibility, their job description includes employer branding um, because of two reasons. One, as I mentioned with the Yeti example, 
your, your employer brand is more synonymous with your external brand than you probably think it is. Uh, you, you, you can't be schizophrenic. You can't be, you know, one way for applicants and a different way for customers. The world is, you know, there's, you know, glass doors is such a great example. And the younger people are, you know, people might like Nike, but disprove of their sweatshop conditions in China and not buy Nike. And it's like, well, was the sweatshop conditions a marketing problem? It is now, you know? And so I think that those lines have blurred a lot. And so we spend most of the time with the employer brand helping people realize that that's a marketing issue. And also it's because I feel like the HR practitioners are devolving into like the legal department. <laughs> like they are. Less and less HR professionals are being groomed to understand that my job is to boost internal engagement as opposed to think their job is to mitigate risk, to prevent sexual harassment, to deal with union negotiation, to OSHA, administer benefits. Training all that kind of stuff. And it's not like that's not important. People and that data. goes back to those silos that we talked about. As the HR function got bigger, they kind of went deep as opposed to broad and they just stopped dealing with elements of, of hyper-engagement internally. So the reality is HR departments are always understaffed and underfunded. Marketing departments are overstaffed and overfunded. <laughs> I mean, they, they have the tools, they have the discretionary dollars, you could take 10%, 5% of your media budget that's not uh, really have any uh, attributable in, uh, impact anyway, put that into HR programs, give them your creative team, give them your copywriter, give them your digital guy or gal for a day. Like your HR team would be overwhelmed with an embarrassment of riches if marketing just deployed some of their resources internally. And then there's this third one that you mentioned. So when I think of personal brand, I think of these cult brand leaders who are on a quest to create a legacy that could transcend even the company that they that they've created. So, you know, at the extreme level, the Richard Branson's, the Steve Jobs, the Howard Schultz, the Jeff Bezos's of the world are brands unto themselves mm -hmm. that correlate with the companies that they have created but have other pros and cons also associated with that. And we're kind of in the era of the celebrity CEO. It doesn't have to be the CEO. Sometimes it could be the celebrity CMO, the, the marketer, or we certainly are starting to uh, over-romanticize the entrepreneur. I think of the woman that just kind of went public with Bumble. And like, mm -hmm. she's like, she's like, she, she's like, could start anything now. Like she doesn't have to be part of Bumble anymore. She's kind of been endowed as this hyper entrepreneur, this charismatic female with bright ideas and great risk taking and she could go start something else and shows like Shark Tank or Dragon's Den here in Canada, we start to celebrate those types of people. And so uh, yeah, I think people have to ask themselves, what's their um, aspiration and ambition? Either is it some of it's fueled by ego, like do they just want to become more of a celebrity? Or is it out of obligation? Like there's a cause that I feel passionate about and I need to dial up my celebrity in order to increase my influence and my impact so that we can save the dolphins or eradicate plastic water bottles. Or, you know, I think of like some companies that I love like Swell or Ben and Jerry's or Lush Cosmetics. When you spend, Chobani, when you spend time with them, you almost feel like you're in a nonprofit. 
They almost right. feel like they're charities that actually happen to sell stuff as opposed to companies that sometimes do some social good. And those, those leaders think very um, uh, calculating about uh, their personal brand and how they're going to create a platform that allows them to make you know, a difference for their causes. But even just taking it down to a smaller scale, say, say that we're, we're not trying to be um, you know, celebrity CEO, I'm just middle management at XYZ company, you know, fortune 500, whatever. If, if I define and position my value and people within the company understand that I'm the SME of this or whatever, or the, my team and my peers know that I'm not going to be the silo person, that I am a team player, that I do look out for the good of others, that I'm going to have your back. I'm going to share the praise. I'm going to take the, the credit for the, the hits or whatever. If that's my brand within the company, I'm not saving the whales, but I'm certainly, my team's going to work harder for me. I'm going to have an easier way of getting things done. I'm probably going to be able to get more budget. I'm probably going to get the buy-in of other people faster, easier, which creates, again, just that whole concept of doing business easier and more ethically, I guess, would, would be the way to look at it. Do you, do you run into that at all? And I, I know you're kind of, you're real big, big brand, big vision. When I go in, I'm more about the employee side and the leadership side. I'm, I apply branding to leadership. Um, how many conversations are you having at that big company C-suite level around that? kind of. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I certainly have heard and have probably said the idea, you know, speaking to a middle manager that, you know, your personal brand sucks. You, people don't want to deal with you. you you're, you're difficult. You're uh, whatever, self-serving. Um, and that's, and that's, I mean, that is probably an appropriate use of the word brand in terms of brand equals reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, where I think it gets more interesting though, is not the characteristics and attributes that make you a, um, a good boss or a good employee. If I, if I was going to use the word brand, I think I would probably have to layer in purpose. And mm-hmm. in addition to all of the attributes of what am I like to work with, it's what's my personal why. And you know, Simon yes. made that famous. And once you layer in the personal why, either A, you'll be forgiven for a lot of dysfunctional things you do because your why is so compelling people give you a lot of slack you know at the extreme example would be steve jobs like a complete jerk to work with but his why was so galvanizing um you know i just watched the trailer for the uh, adam newman story the we work documentary uh-huh we work is probably the best example of of abusing cult-like principles uh, where people need to realize these are true principles. These are powerful. And the metaphor is kind of uh, provocative. Like most cults are disastrous. And like right. cults, are, you know, result in people drinking poison Kool-Aid and killing themselves. So right. we, we, we tried to take a positive spin and, and to change the connotation that cults should also should be, should be a, a you know, every religion started as a cult. And so mm-hmm. uh, they cults transcend and eventually become something can become something good. But like we work is such a great example of the personal brand of that leader was so powerful 
that it resulted in, you know, power corrupted and, and, and right. a lot of people got bamboozled. And it, I think it's the most recent example of proceed with caution as you build your personal brand or your employer brand or your business brand, that if you're going to, if you're going to use the cult brand playbook, uh, you're playing with fire. Now that could be amazing because you could create combustions into something nuclear. That's awesome, but you could also get burned and I, and you shouldn't take these things lightly. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, well, so as we're wrapping up, what would you say, no matter who, who they are, what size company they're, they're in, where they are on the, the food chain, if you will, what parting advice would you give any leader as it relates to um, amplifying a cult brand? So the number one piece of advice, so what I'm, what I'm hoping to adopt is my sort of personal uh, mission statement is, is this. If we are not capable, uh, I just screwed up. Let me start over. <laughs> if we are not careful, we will become far less than we are capable of being, which really speaks to two things. One, living a life of intention and not just settling or going with the flow. And two, dreaming far bigger than we typically dream. And, and I just, I, I spend more time trying to convince C-suites that your business is more capable than you think it is to achieve cult status, as opposed to them giving me all the excuses why they're mediocre. We have to be mediocre because, and it's worse in the B2B space than it is in the B2C space. Uh, most B2B people think that there's just, our category that nobody cares about our category. There's no emotional attachment within our category or a lot of people will blame, you know, the founder or the board or the bot. I want to do it, but the, the powers that be around me refuse to be more special. That's like, you can't live your life with those types of excuses. If you truly believe these, then go find an organization that will allow you to do the best work of your life and will allow you to do the things that are going to, not even feel like a job. Like when you spend time with cult brand leaders, they have so perfectly integrated work and life. It's just, it's their essence. This is who I am. This is why I'm on this planet. I, you mentioned, I don't know that I subscribe to leadership as a calling, but I do believe everybody has a calling and that when you find it, it's just, it's pleasurable, right? It doesn't mean every day is, you know, rainbows and, and lollipops, right? Mean that, that it doesn't ever feel like, uh, you know, something that I'm dreading, I'm, uh, you know, it, it, begrudging it. It's you're, you're building something because you've created a cause or a movement that is bigger than just these, you know, transactional relationships. Transactions will come. Financial success is a, is a means. It's not the end. And right. that, you know, some of the, I, I, it's very hard to find an unsuccessful cult brand. It's really easy to find unsuccessful, mediocre brands. And that's where I think people have to stop this either or mentality and say, if we just go for a cult-like status, the financial rewards will follow. Well, because that emotional commitment is there. And that's, again, circling back on all different aspects of, of branding. Um, that's where I see it with the, with the leadership is if, if you have, I will now say a cult um, personal brand within your organization, people are emotionally going to respond to you. They're going to stay the extra five minutes. They're going to have your back. They're going to take that call. They're going to manage that situation. They're going to move the roadblock. 
because they have an emotional investment into you. And, and you brilliantly pointed out because they understand your why they understand where you're coming from because your values align with their values. And, and it's just a beautiful thing. Um, love your parting piece of advice. I have so I've taken a full thing of notes here <laughs> that we will put in the show notes. We'll link to the book, um, fix. Um, I can't believe that I didn't read that before this interview. So I apologize about that. Um, but I will be picking that one up. Where else can people find you? Well, what we're really excited about Amber. So eight, nine years ago, we realized there's something weirds going on. Like these principles are so true. The, the, the case studies are so obvious. Like how does the Dallas Cowboys become the single most profitable sports franchise? And they haven't been, you know, to the Super Bowl in 25 years. So it's like, I'm curious about that. Like their marketing and brand playbook is better than their offense and defensive. Playbook. <laughs> and I don't understand why more people aren't asking those questions. What is going on with Chick-fil-A? It means that there's a lineup around the building, you know, eight hours of the day and the, the Burger King next door doesn't have that. So I think all we've really done is try to decode those things. And, um, you know, I'm not an unbiased observer. I'm not a researcher. I'm a consultant. So it's in my financial best interest to persuade people to my point of view. So I appreciate that. And so to create objectivity every year, we parade these brand leaders onto a stage at an event that's historically held in Banff, Canada. Um, but given COVID for the first time ever, it's all virtual. So I have no idea when this is going to air, but this content, much like TED Talks, is uh -huh. now going to be democratized. It's going to be set free for the world and people will be able to go to cultgathering.com and, and see all the historical speeches uh, as well as see, you know, we have Amazon and Traeger Grills and Netflix and Peloton and McDonald's all kind of on the stage to say, here's what we've done to achieve the results that we've achieved. And I love it because it's this giant, don't take Chris's word for it. Yeah. <laughs> tell their story. And then you can draw your own conclusion. And I'm excited that, you know, the pilgrimage to Banff, while awesome, was expensive and inconvenient. And now it's cheap and cheerful that you can go online and see it. So I tell your listeners to certainly check out cultgathering.com. The actual content itself is being produced April 19th, 20th, and 21st, but then it will live on that website uh, for a year. Uh, so people can tune in in June or July or August and, and be able to benefit from it all. Well, then we will make sure that we get this episode out in time for them to know about it. Um, we will make that happen on our end and I'll be excited to check it out too. Chris, um, I, I love smart people and I love collecting smart friends. So I'm grateful that you came on the show today and shared your brilliance with us. Um, I definitely see everything behind the eyes that gets you up during the, yeah. you know, every day. So I appreciate that about you. And, um, we will make sure to connect to all the websites and everything on the show. And I hope that we can stay in touch and I'll talk to you soon. That sounds great. Thanks so much for the conversation, Amber. I enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in. Mentioned resources can be found at amberhurdle.com. Be sure to leave a rating and review in your favorite podcast app and subscribe. So you never miss an update. As always, thank you to The Coup for our intro and outro music. See you next time.